Last week, we just introduced Matthew and uh, gave a little bit of background about the book itself and why it was written, how it was written, how it stands out from the other Gospels. We said that Matthew was a Jew, he was writing to Jews, and he was writing about the king of the Jews, Jesus. And uh, so we differentiated it a little bit from the other Gospels, and we also talked about Matthew himself and how Jesus called him and the, the uniqueness of his calling, who he was before Jesus and who he became because of Jesus. And uh, uh, so I'd encourage you, uh, again, uh, if you weren't here or if you'd like to listen to it again, you can go on to wherever you listen to podcasts, Google, Spotify, Apple, and uh, you can look up the Driven uh, Student Ministry Podcast and you'll be able to uh, just re-listen to whatever episode or lesson that you might have missed. And so make sure that you do that. But Matthew chapter number one is where we're going to start today as we start looking at the book. And so uh, we're going to uh, get through Matthew 1 and 2 today. And so let's just start right at the beginning of Matthew chapter number uh, Matthew chapter number 1 at verse number 1. And uh, because I think the very first verse of Matthew is important in understanding how the rest of Matthew fits in uh, to the Bible. And uh, Matthew chapter number one and verse number one says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so, uh, of course, we know from studying that Matthew one and two are the accounts of Jesus arriving to earth. And uh, Matthew 1, 1 introduces that, and it shows, uh, this is the first uh, uh, note in your handout, it shows that Jesus is the climax of the Old Testament. We said last week, again, Matthew is writing to Jews. He's a Jew. And so he, probably more than the other Gospels, will connect the Old Testament to Jesus. Uh, they'll, he'll connect the importance of the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, the things that the Jewish people held on to and thought were important. He'll connect Jesus to those things. And he does that right here in verse number one, uh, because he situates Jesus within history for the Jewish people. Uh, first of all, he says this is the book or the record of Jesus Christ, and somebody who has a record has a history. We would say they have a history, and so there's something that you can look back on. There's something that you can tie them to, and so he says Jesus is a part of history, and he ties Jesus, just in this first verse, he ties Jesus to both the royal line and the heritage of all the Jews. Look at verse number one again. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so Matthew, right off the bat, says, hey, Jewish people, I'm connecting Jesus, the one I believe to be the Messiah, the one you should believe to be the Messiah. I'm connecting him with the royal line, first of all. He is the king, the son of David. But not just that, I'm going to take it back even farther, and I'm going to take him and connect him to the heritage of the Jewish nation, Abraham, the father uh, of the Jewish nation, the father of many nations. And he fulfills, he shows that this is now the fulfillment of the promise made to both of those men, to Abraham and to David. Uh, look at Genesis chapter number 12 and look at verse number one. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. 
And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so that, of course, is a prophecy of Jesus, that, that from Abraham would come Jesus, the Messiah, and that through Jesus, salvation and blessing would come to everyone uh, here on earth. Uh, the promise was made to him in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. And so that seed, that, that, that the one that would come from Abraham was Jesus. And so in Matthew 1.1, we see the fulfillment of that promise. And then also to David in 2 Samuel verse number, or chapter 7, verse number 11, it says, And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee, that he will make thee an house, or he'll give you uh, 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 those that will come after you. He'll give you offspring. He'll give you generations following. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, the one that would come after David, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Of course, this is also talking about Solomon. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it away, took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And so the only way that a kingly line from a human man like David could last forever is if it's what is going to be connected to Jesus, the King, forever and ever. And so uh, Psalm 89 uh, says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And so uh, Matthew in saying Jesus is the one that fulfills the promises made to both Abraham and to David. God's promise that the one that would come after them would, to Abraham, bless all nations, bringing salvation, and through David would have that kingly line being the king that would last forever. And uh, so very, very important. Uh, so let's look at Matthew chapter number one. And uh, in Matthew one, we find that Matthew starts out with a genealogy. And again, this is very important because we said that Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews about the king of the Jews. And if a king has any credence, then he has a pedigree. You can look back on his, throughout his history and you can trace him back to other kings. And so if Jesus, if Matthew's going to make the case that Jesus is king, you've got to be able to trace him back in the kingly line. And uh, so we find a genealogy here. Now, there's a couple things that I want us to know about. We won't read it all just because I don't want to butcher some of these names this morning. Uh, but uh, there's a couple things that I want us to know about Jesus's genealogy. First of all, there are 41 names. That's one of the reasons why we're not going to read it. There are 41 names in Jesus's genealogy. So it's, a, it's a pretty decent long. You'll find longer ones in the Bible but it's a pretty decently long genealogy. Again, from, from similar to what we just said, it traces the line from Abraham. So you'll read in Luke another genealogy about Jesus. Uh, that goes from Adam. So it goes all the way back to the beginning. Uh, but because Matthew is a Jew, writing to Jews, he's only worried about the Jewish nation. He wants them to see that Jesus the Messiah is from the Jewish nation. 
And so he just connects it back to Abraham. He starts at Abraham there in verse number two. Abraham begat Isaac. Um, then we see it kind of divided up into a couple of different portions. We see uh, that it goes through David, goes through David. And, and I believe as you read through any of the genealogies in the Bible of Jesus, they all go through David. Uh, and that's important. And again, because Matthew is making the case that Jesus is king, he has to go through David. He has to show the connection to the royal line uh, in Israel. Now, here's one thing that's interesting about Jesus' genealogy that you don't see in the other account of Jesus' uh, heritage of his genealogy, and that's this. It mentions five women. There are five women in Jesus' genealogy here in Matthew. Uh, look at verse number 3. The Bible says, And Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. So there's the first lady, uh, Tamar. And Perez begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Naasan, and Naasan begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. So there's number two. So we've got Tamar, we've got Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, there's three, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And so there, without naming her, there's Bathsheba. And then look at verse number 16, and Jacob, and Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary. And so there's number five. So five women are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy here in Matthew, and that is rare. That was a rarity in Eastern culture. Uh, to mention women at all. Usually it was just the men. And, and you read in other accounts of, of genealogies in the Bible, this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat this guy, and this guy, and this guy. And it just goes through all the men. You usually don't read much many women and their names being recorded in there. But Matthew makes sure that there are five women recorded uh, in Jesus' genealogy. And what's even more interesting is not just that he mentions five, but it's the, the, that it's these five. It's these five women, uh, because uh, Matthew doesn't mention, obviously we know Matthew is under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and this is the Lord writing this and specifically including these five women, but he doesn't mention noble, uh, noteworthy women like Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the mother of many nations. Uh, it doesn't mention Rebecca, uh, who would have Jacob and Isaac, and of course we know Jacob would have the 12, the 12 sons and they would be the 12 tribes. It doesn't mention those ladies. But it mentions these five women. Four of them had questionable backgrounds. Four of them had questionable backgrounds. Uh, Tamar, in verse number three, uh, she poses as a prostitute. You can read that account in Genesis. She poses as a prostitute in order to have her father-in-law uh, produce a child with her. Uh, you've got Rahab, who, if you read Rahab, we know she's the one that met the spies in Jericho and welcomed them into her home and hid them from the, the soldiers in Jericho that were looking for them and let them down by the scarlet rope. Well, the Bible says that she was also a prostitute uh, in, uh, in Joshua chapter number uh, four, I believe. Uh, then you've got Ruth. Uh, who we know the whole book about Ruth and the wonderful story uh, of Ruth and, and the love that she had for her, her mother-in-law and how she came uh, to, uh, to Israel with her mother-in-law and said, your God is my God and that wonderful story of love. But before that, Ruth was a Moabitess, which meant that she was a pagan idol worshiper. 
Um, and then you've got uh, Bathsheba. And obviously we know that Bathsheba, uh, David, because of his sin with her, made her an adulteress. And so we've got four out of these five ladies have questionable backgrounds. Um, three of them were Gentiles. Tamar, uh, this is before the nation of Israel has even started, and so she's a Gentile. Uh, Rahab, obviously she's a Canaanitish woman in Jericho. And Ruth, who is a Moabitess, and Bathsheba's married to one, Uriah the Hittite. And so four out of these five women have questionable backgrounds. Three of them, all four of them have Gentile connections. And I think it's important that we see this because Matthew, in, in doing this, and Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, in inspiring him to write this, shows us uh, that Jesus' genealogy runs against the Eastern first century cultural instincts by including these women. It runs against their moral instincts by including these women, these exact women. And it runs against their religious instincts by including women that were not Jews. And so it's very important that we understand this because I believe that it points back to what we learned about with Matthew last week. It points back to what we saw in Matthew and, and the fact that Matthew hated among the Jews Matthew despised by the Jews. Matthew, within the current religious structure, had no way to come back to God. Matthew knew about redemption. And as the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write these names, I bet he could relate with them. As he told him, hey, I want you to write down that Tamar, he's a, he's a, she's a descendant of Jesus. Uh, I, I want you to, to write down Rahab and, and Ruth. And Bathsheba, they're all a part of Jesus' story. And I think that Matthew understood that, and it was important. Uh, he knew that Jesus had come to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. She shall bring forth the Son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And not just his people, but all people. And I think that in just this account of, of Jesus' descendants... In Matthew 1, uh, we see that Jesus came to save all people. Uh, I love this. Jesus was descended from imperfect people, but he was the perfect one. Why? Because he came to save them. Uh, Jesus came to save not a particular race, not a particular gender, uh, not a particular type of sinner. Jesus came to save all people. And we see that in his genealogy. Very, very important. Uh, the, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the, the Hebrew name for God. Jesus means Yahweh saves, revealing that Jesus came to deal with the root problem of man, our sin. And we know that in, in Luke 19.10, Jesus came, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus does not qualify the type of lost. Jesus does not qualify the who that's lost. Jesus does not qualify how bad they're lost. Jesus says, I've come to save that which was lost. And we see that evident here. And so just in the genealogy of Jesus, we see an encapsulation of Jewish history and where Jesus fits into it. And again, very important because Matthew is appealing to Jewish people. And so they need to be able to see this. And I believe with how Matthew and how uh, the Holy Spirit presents it, is it shows that Jesus does not just fit in here at the end, but Jesus fits throughout the whole thing. Uh, where he begins with Abraham, the father of the Jews. He continues to David the king in verse number six, and he specifically says that. Look at verse number six. 
It says, And Jesse begat David the king. Specifically, so there's no question which David we're talking about here. It's David the king. Jesus is descended from the king. It continues through the kingly line to the captivity where it ended. Look at verse 11. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And so now we've got the captivity where uh, the Israelite people, the Jewish people have been carried away into Babylon. The kingly line included has been carried away to Babylon. It has ended effectively in having authority and rule in Israel. But the genealogy continues. And now from this moment where captivity begins, even though the throne does not exist, the kingly line still continues, and it continues all the way through the captivity till we get to Joseph in verse number 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is all Christ. Now, what does that tell us about Joseph? If the royal line had not been broken, that means Joseph would have been king. You realize that? If the royal line that ended when the captivity began, when Nebuchadnezzar came and carried away the, uh, the kings and all the people to Babylon, and Israel ceased to be an autonomous ruling nation, if that hadn't happened, and the kings had kept on going, and one guy died, and his son became king, and the next guy died, and his son became king, and it kept on going like that, all the way to where we're reading about here in Matthew 1 and 2. That means Joseph, the carpenter of Nazareth, would not have been doing menial labor. He would have been sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Now, when you realize that, it puts Joseph in a different light. Because unless you think about it in that way, you read the genealogy looking at it from that perspective, you would never, ever, 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 ever know from Joseph himself that he should have been king. And I think there's a few things that we can learn from Joseph, and I want to spend the rest of our time looking at Joseph here in Matthew chapter number 1 and Matthew chapter number 2, because I think there's a few, uh, there's a few important traits that we can pull out from Joseph. Uh, first of all, Joseph was a just man. Joseph was a just man. The Bible specifically says that he was a just man. And I believe that he was a just man because he followed. It doesn't say he was a righteous man or a perfect man. It just says he was a just man, meaning he was following the Jewish laws and customs of the day. Joseph was doing what he was supposed to be doing as a Jewish man, as a religious man. He was doing what he knew to do. He was a just man. Verse number 19 says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to take her away privily. Joseph is following the law. He's adhering to the, the Jewish leaders of the day. And don't think that Joseph didn't know his descendants. Don't think that Joseph didn't know that great, 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 grandpa, so-and-so, was king once upon a time. Jewish heritage was very important back then. They knew their descendants. They knew their genealogy. And so don't think that Joseph didn't know, I probably should be king, not Herod. But Joseph wasn't worried about that because Joseph was a just man. Joseph did what he knew 
that he was supposed to do. And so Joseph was going about his life and he was uh, working an honest job as a carpenter and he was following the religious customs of the day. And I'm sure that he was, you know, he was paying his tax. We know that from Luke, that he was willing to go and pay his taxes. And and he was uh, probably going to the synagogue and and doing what he was supposed to do and offering sacrifices in the temple. And so Joseph was a just man. And now imagine, and Joseph thinks that he's got his life all together, you know. He's working a job. It's probably pretty successful. Uh, he is following what he believes God has him to do, and he's even got a fiance, right? Uh, he's even got a fiance. Life is good for Joseph until Mary shows up one day. Look at verse number 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, engaged, before they came together, before they were married, she was found the child of the Holy Ghost. I try to picture how that conversation went down or how she was found. I, I don't, uh, but Joseph found out somehow. Whether she came and told him or he just noticed, it's probably not too many tacos. Uh, something's going on here. And, and that's probably not right. And, and, and Joseph knows because he is a just man, he's followed the religious laws. They haven't been together. It's nothing that they have done. And you can imagine if you're engaged or if you're dating or if you're married and your significant other came to you and says, hey, I'm having a child and it's from the Holy Ghost. Okay. Uh, only one person tried that in, in history. But, but Joseph heard that. And what's, what's significant about that is that Joseph was still a just man. Joseph was going to do what he needed to do in this situation regardless. Uh, look at verse number 19 again. It says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Uh, Joseph knew what could happen to Mary if the religious leaders of the day found out. Uh, you... Go in your mind to the stories of Jesus. You remember when Jesus is teaching in the, in the temple and the Pharisees and the religious leaders bring that woman who's caught in adultery and they throw her before him and they say, they accuse her of what she's done and they say, Jesus, you know, our law says that this woman's worthy to die. Now that was one, one incident when Jesus was right there. We know Jesus says he's without sin, cast the first stone, and she lived, obviously. But that was what happened. That's what could happen to a young lady who was accused. And we're sorry, Mary, but the evidence is kind of stacked against you. I mean, no one's used that excuse of the Holy Spirit yet. So Joseph knew not willing to make her a public example, at best, at best, Mary would be ridiculed and outcast and scorned and she would be destitute. No one would accept her. She would be a pariah to her society. She had no chance of survival. Joseph knew that was best case. Worst case, the stones would come out. And so Joseph said, I'm a just man. I want what's best, obviously, to do what's right. 
but I also want what is best for Mary. And so he was minded to put her away privately, the Bible says. Now, I don't know, again, we don't know exactly what that means. Could that have meant that Joseph was just going to kind of take her out of town and put her on a donkey and get her out of there, send her to a place that nobody would know? Or could that mean Joseph was thinking about doing the unthinkable at his own hand? instead of allowing a, an angry mob or an angry crowd. But Joseph was a just man. Uh, and what I think is important here, because Joseph, and I believe probably in Joseph's mind, it was more or less the former that he was going to just let, it was a private divorce. Jewish law did allow for that at the time, uh, to spare her life, to spare her the humiliation. And I think that at this point, Joseph is modeling the life of a true disciple because uh, Jesus portrays that as well. In Matthew 12, 7, in fact, hold your place in Matthew chapter number 1 and look at Matthew 12, 7. I don't have that verse for the screen. But Matthew 12, 7, Jesus said, But ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus desired mercy, and, and Joseph was showing that here. He was a just man. He knew what was right. He knew what he should do, but he also wanted to have mercy. And, and I was thinking about this. How hard in the world is it for us to show mercy to people sometimes? Hmm. How hard is that? When you're in the store, or you're driving, or you're dealing with a child in a class, your teachers can... Or you're dealing with somebody else that's in a class, or you're dealing with a customer at work, how hard is it for us? And I'm, my hand is up here, okay? You, you can all act, act like you don't know what I'm talking about. But it's hard to have mercy sometimes. How quick, even with people that we know, and even with people that we are friends with, how quick sometimes are we to assume the worst about their intentions, or about what they're thinking, or about what they really wanted, or about what they really meant by that com comment, or what they uh, really were saying with that, uh, that post on Facebook. Do we forget that Jesus and the life that he offers us, the life that he gave to us and the mercy that he shows to us, Jesus is not the Pharisees. Jesus was not that religious crowd. Jesus was the one when the Pharisees brought that woman to Jesus and wanted to stone her for adultery. Jesus is the one that said, hey, he's writing in the sand. You without sin cast the first stone. And then they all left. And he looked up and said, where are your accusers? And she said, they're all gone. She said, well, neither do I condemn you. Jesus had mercy. Um, do we forget that, as we said last week with Matthew, that Jesus calls us the way that we are? That Jesus calls us in, in spite of our failures, in spite of our shortcomings, uh, in spite of our past, and he has mercy on us in spite of all those things. In spite of everything that we've done. And so we need to ask ourselves, can, can we show a little mercy to those around us? We like it when it's shown to us. When we mess up, or we do something stupid, or we do something even unintentional. We like when mercy is shown to us. Can we offer some mercy to people? Yeah, we need to hold the line and we need to be just and we need to make sure that we're doing right. We need to make sure that others are doing right around us if we have responsibility over them. But can we have some mercy? Some mercy. And Joseph had mercy. He was a just man, but he showed mercy. But not only was he a just man, Joseph was a patient man. Joseph was a patient man. Joseph was not hasty in making decisions to act quickly or to make decisions in important matters. Joseph, in verse number 
20, Joseph was the just man. He knew what he was supposed to do or what he should do. He knew what the law said. He knew it was right. But he also wanted to have mercy. He knew he needed to do something. But Joseph also knew that he could wait. Joseph didn't act quickly. Uh, and so verse number 20 says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared on him in a dream. Now you read that, and I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I've read that before, I've always thought one day Mary comes to Joseph, he finds out that she's pregnant. Joseph's got to figure out what to do that night. How many of you have ever read that the way before? That night, the angel comes to Joseph. That's not what the Bible says. No, it could have been. But we don't know how long Joseph had to, Joseph thought on these things. We don't know how long Joseph had to wait while he was just trying to figure out what to do. But Joseph did. Why? Because he probably wasn't sure what to do. He knew, he knew what the law said. He knew what his heart said. And there was the conflict there. And so instead of making a decision one way or the other, Joseph waited for clarity. Uh, I think we miss out on God's leading in our lives because we act too quickly in certain circumstances. We either think we know what we're supposed to do or we think we know what we want to do and we take one of those two roads and we're not letting God lead us the way that we were supposed to. Because Joseph was patient. Listen, see, most of the time we're wait, we, we want to know the why. When we're supposed to do something, we're conflicted between what we should do and what we want to do. We just want to know why. What, what, what's the direction? We just want to know why. And because Joseph was patient, he got the whole explanation. Now, Joseph could have acted on what he either knew he wanted to do or what he knew he was supposed to do, and Joseph could have done something to mess up God's plan. Now, I don't think God would have let that happen. But Joseph waited, and because he waited, he got the entire explanation from God about what was going on. He got clarity. He got the why. You know, we're, we want the why from God. We want the direction. We want the what's next from God, but we're not patient enough to wait for it. Again, I don't know how long Joseph had to wait, but he did, and God was able to direct him. So not only was Joseph a just man, Joseph was a patient man. And then lastly here, Joseph was an obedient man. Joseph was an obedient man. When he knew the why, and this is why I think God chose Mary and Joseph, because when Joseph knew the why, and he knew what he was supposed to do, he did it. He didn't hesitate. He didn't continue to question. He didn't continue to think about it. He didn't continue to wonder. Joseph just did it. Verse number 24, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took him to his wife. Joseph didn't even question it. Joseph said, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's from God, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, this may be another reason why we don't get wise. When we want God to give us direction, when we want God to give us leading, when we got, want God to give us the next step, God says, I don't know if I can trust you to do it if I give it to you. I don't know if I can trust you to go in that direction. If I give you the right direction, if I, if I give you the, the what, the where, the when, the why, if I give you what's next, are you going to do it? And God continued to trust Joseph. God continued to use Joseph. Now, we don't read much about Joseph after Matthew, the accounts of Matthew chapter number 2, but God trusted Joseph. Why? Because as God gave him direction and leading, God, or Joseph continued to be obedient. Uh, look at 
Matthew 2 and 13. And when they, this is after Joseph, or after Jesus has been born. This is after the, the wise men have come to Jesus. And this is when Herod the king wants to kill all the babies of the land. Uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they have absolutely no clue what's going on. But verse number 13, and when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Joseph just packs up everything because God told him to. Takes Mary and Joseph and or Mary and Jesus and packs everything up and we're going to Egypt. Why? Because God told us to. Uh, and then again, verse number 19, but when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they uh, are dead, which sought the young child's life, and he arose. And took the young child and his mother and came in the land of Egypt. When God told Joseph to do something, God gave Joseph direction. He gave him the why. Joseph was obedient. And so I think, uh, let me just give you this. We've got a minute left. I want to give you these last four little things. Because God used Joseph. Obviously, Joseph was the stepfather, the earthly father of Jesus. That's big responsibility. You're the earthly father. You're raising the son of God. This is a big deal. So why could Joseph or why could God trust Joseph? Four things, real quick, and then we'll be done. Number one, he was not dwelling on what he didn't have. He was not dwelling on what he didn't have. You don't read about Joseph being down in the dumps or having a pity party for himself because he wasn't the king. Joseph was not dwelling on what he didn't have. He was focused on doing what he was supposed to be doing because that's number two. He was doing what he already knew to do in this. What to do? Joseph was already doing what he knew he was supposed to do. Hey, guess what? You have a book that tells you what you're supposed to do. You have a church that gives you opportunity to do what you're supposed to do. In those moments where you're trying to figure out what's next, do what you're supposed to do. Do what you already know you should be doing. Number three, he was willing to wait if he didn't know the answer. Joseph was willing to wait if he didn't know the answer. Joseph, uh, again, he wasn't hasty. He didn't move quickly. He was willing to wait. And then lastly, he was obedient when the answer was given to him. Joseph was obedient. When the answer was given, Joseph said, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And that's why God used Joseph. All right, let me give you just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first of all, next Sunday night after church is going to be our next Sunday night get-together. And so plan on coming to the house after church next Sunday night. We're going to bring back our musical rotating games that we did this summer. And uh, we had a good time with that. We're going to put a couple of new games in the rotation. If you weren't here uh, during the summer when we did that, plan to be here. It was a lot of fun. We're going to have a southern feast, some barbecue and mac and cheese and baked beans and all that good stuff. So it's, it's going to be a good time. So sun next Sunday night after church. Um, and then, uh, really, the next big thing on the calendar is Easter, um, and that is April 4th, the first Sunday of Easter, of April, and so make sure that you've got that circled on your calendar. If you're involved in different things, you'll hear about some of the uh, details about it uh, in the service today, but circle that on your calendar and make sure that you invite somebody. Uh, most people down here will go to church somewhere on Easter, so let it be with you, and so make sure that you invite somebody to Easter. All right, church starts in about 13 minutes. You are dismissed. Oh.
you're excused. Ah, see? Hey, hey, what would you feel like about being the person that makes it every Sunday? I'll try. You try? Next Sunday when you get here, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure everything's here. And I'll, and I'll, I'll just... If I don't have coffee. Yeah, yeah. I'll go over it with you. But if you would do that, that would save me some time. And since I know you drink it, it's important to you. So you'll always remember to do it. Uh, so if you would be willing to do that, that would be great. Give me some. Well, even if you come right before Sunday, that's fine. Okay, so we'll talk about it next time, right? Yeah, make sure the coffee makes it. That's right, that's right. That's a big job. And the notes. And don't know. Did I spell with a K? No, that's, that's, that's how it's in the Bible. Was it a verse? Yeah, yeah, that's how it is. That's how it's spelled in the Bible. I like them on too. Well, it may be just where you're getting it from. Because, like, some of them, they still hold the old English spellings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What happened to that? New version? 